In the summer of 1922, farmer Wilfred James murdered his wife. His son Henry assisted him. Ever since, the two appear to be cursed, with nothing but bad luck following them all the way to the grave. From the mind of Stephen King, this Netflix original film tells a tale of murder and its grave consequences in the year 1922. I'm Connor Azagari. And I'm Austin Johnson. And this is Filmgasm. Happy Wednesday and welcome to the Filmgasm Podcast, your one-stop shop for genre film reviews and fan-based movie analysis. This past Sunday, we debuted our new series, Oscar Sunday, with Pulp Fiction being our first film. Recording went well, and by the time this episode comes out, Oscar Sunday will be available to download on iTunes, if that is your preferred method of listening to podcasts. You can also find it on YouTube under the Filmgasm Productions channel. If you're noticing a change in audio quality, that's because we have now switched from Skype to Zoom, which has much less audio problems and is far easier to handle for our podcasting needs. <laughs> and we yeah, need- you know, don't yeah. want to uh, don't want to app shame Skype here, but <laughs> Zoom is far superior. Yes, Skype feels like we've been doing this on dial-up internet, and then we found Zoom, and now we understand. <laughs> what wi-fi is so (laughs) skype hasn't been updated in 15 years (laughs) but this is this is good this is this is looking like it's going to be good we'll see yeah yeah it makes sense that all the other podcasts uh all over the world have switched to this we were just late to the party that's okay (laughs) at least we're here okay we made it to the party (laughs) fashionably late yeah quite most people are leaving the party but we're getting started We have no rewind today, so let's jump right into it. Prior to the show, had you seen 1922? Yeah, I watched it right when it came out. So it's a, it was a bit foggy, so it was good to rewatch it. Um, it is a total, total atmospheric horror film for me. It's very, very dark, very tense, and very bleak. Yeah. Uh, n- nothing really redeeming here or uh, of that nature, so... It's one of those, yeah. You gotta, you gotta kind of be in the be in the mood for it. You know what I mean? But I do, yeah. I do enjoy, I do enjoy it a lot. I, it's hard to really stand out uh, as far as Stephen King's stories go because, you know, there's so many, <laughs> and uh, we've covered a lot of them here, and they can get sort of lost in the shuffle. But I think 1922, as far as the recent stuff goes, is is of of the highest quality. You know, it's um, it's right up there. I think people should check it out. Uh, especially because it's uh, right there on Netflix for free if you uh, have that subscription. So, good stuff. But this was your first time? Yeah. I uh, I mean, long-time listeners know that, like, we're, we're both huge King fans. And well, I, hmm? well, hold on. I, I, I'm a big King fan. You are a King fanatic. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I try to read everything he's got prior to watching the movies. I like to have that compare and contrast because I feel like, King, more than other authors, is tougher to translate to page and still keep the the, the tone. And uh, when it's done right, it's done really well. And when it's done terribly, you you can tell. And 1922, yeah. I think, is it's a very well done adaptation. It's I read the story recently, and it's verbatim except for the ending. Yeah, 
I figured. The film's ending, I kind of like a little better because it's more ambiguous. Uh, Which makes sense for a movie versus a book, right? Yeah. Sometimes a book, yeah, sometimes a book, when you take all those pages, you want to kind of wrap it, wrap it up. And sometimes, let's be honest, Stephen King, because he's so prolific, doesn't wrap things up that well sometimes. And so, yeah, I, I think, I think this movie made a good decision to do that. It be, it's actually a rare occurrence when he sticks the landing, which yeah. is kind of weird because he's such a talented writer. But most of his stories, the endings are not great. But 1922, it's a good cyclical kind of, you know, sins of the father, but also, you know, ghosts, if you want to think about it. Like, it kind of leaves it up to you. Like, are there... Is he being haunted? Is he losing his mind? We don't really know. And the book kind of point it points you in the direction of he really was being haunted. But the movie also just kind of leaves you to think like, well, what's going to happen next? And yeah, I kind of like that. It's like the exact opposite of what happened in the mist because the story is very ambiguous and it leaves you thinking like, maybe they'll get out of this. Maybe they'll find a way. And the movie is very much like, we're going to fucking die right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I love King. I'm going to keep loving King. And I'm glad I read this first because I, you know, I, I like to have, like I said, I like to have that compare. And uh, yeah, 1922 began life as a novella by Stephen King, first published in his 2010 story collection, Full Dark No Stars, alongside the stories Big Driver, Fair Extension, and A Good Marriage. Of these, Fair Extension is the only one that hasn't been adapted to film yet. And uh, I just found out about the Big Driver movie. And uh, I'm going to have to watch that. I read the... the, uh, I have the collection Full Dark No Stars. I read only 1922 to prep for this show. So I haven't read the other three stories yet. But I read the uh, synopsis on the flap for Big Driver. And it sounds like one of the darkest fucking stories he's ever written. It's about a. I think if I remember correctly, it's about a rape survivor going after the uh, the rapist. Jeez. So, and the movie had a pretty decent cast: Maria Bello, uh, Joan Jett. So, gonna have to check that out. Yeah. What in the hell? <laughs> I don't know. And then a good yeah, marriage. No, I've seen that floating around Netflix for the past few years. I haven't watched that yet either. Yeah. Well, you know, like you said, uh, Filmgasm respects King greatly. So we've always tried to do one of his movies in every, what is it? Every five episodes sort of thing. Back when we were doing that kind of rotation. Yeah. 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 We've, we've, we've just covered a lot of his stuff and from classics to stuff that bombed to the stuff that's right here, right up the middle that just kind of hits the nail on the head. Doesn't, I don't think 1922 necessarily is up at the top of the, top of the list but it's right it's it's there you know it's it's in the conversation of stuff that like you said is a good ad- adaptation it didn't make a splash it kind of just came and went nobody really cared yeah and i don't really know how to measure success with netflix well but, yeah they're very secretive about their numbers yeah like how do they i don't know how a movie is considered profitable in that it's like you know we saw that with the irishman where it was like 150 million dollar budget and the theater gross was like eight million dollars it's like yeah how how do we know that this profited yeah who knows uh so yeah 1922 the story is very dark and also very human and uh 
like I said, the film's surprisingly close. The ending's really the only difference. And uh, in the story, specifically, Wilford James is bitten to death by a swarm of rats right before he tries to kill himself. And the hotel staff find him with thousands of bite marks all over his body, his confession letter shredded. And kind of the reader has to decide if, like, was he insane or did the rats do it? And it's pretty, King pushes you very much towards the rats did it. <laughs> yeah. His stories yeah. aren't very ambiguous sometimes. A lot of times it's like, yeah, he was fucking haunted. <laughs> and uh, I don't, King, like for me, do you notice that King has a, a weird, I won't say obsession, but a fascination with cornfields? Oh, yeah, for sure. He definitely has his... His, his tropes, like his signature, and that's one of them for sure, yeah. It's weird, though. Cornfields are scary, though. I get, you know, I get it. I've... Cornfields and bad parents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, this one has both. <laughs> <laughs> Hell, yeah. Best of both worlds for King. Oh, God. Uh, the film was written and directed by Zach Hilditch. Some of his other work includes Waiting for Naval Base Lily, The Actress, Plum Roll, The Toll, These Final Hours, and Rattlesnake, all of which he wrote and directed. And I have never heard of any of those movies. Haven't heard of them either, nor have I met anyone who's heard of them. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure this is all, this is the only frame of reference I have for that guy. Who is this dude who was given a Stephen King story to adapt for Netflix? Who has like, honestly a decent amount of stuff on his resume where it's all written and directed by him so i'm like what what's the who yeah who is should we see this stuff should we see this other stuff the imdb scores did not look friendly i yeah i don't know i mean i'm not you know leaping to check out this guy's work <laughs> thomas jane though he stars as wilford james nebraska farmer turned murderer Jane uh, previously appeared in past filmgasm topic, The Mist, and he was also the second actor to play the Punisher on the big screen behind Dolph Lundgren in the 80s. Some of his other work includes Boogie Nights, The Thin Red Line, Dreamcatcher, Magnolia, and The Predator. He's a highly underrated character actor who I think gives his strongest performance in 1922. He's unrecognizable in this movie. Yeah. My God. I don't... I don't think he gets enough credit. I don't think he gets enough like high profile work. He's very, very talented. Yeah. I, I think he's, you know, we've talked about guys like this where it seems like they find their best, best uh, little niche right there in the supporting. You know, I think he's, I think he's really, really, really good in boogie nights. Uh, he's like a firecracker in that movie and uh, totally necessary for that movie to kind of turn the way it does. And I think, I think that's when he's at his best, but my favorite role is this right here um, as Wilfred in 1922. I just haven't seen him be able to do this before. Uh, Have this kind of freedom, uh, be able to be this dark and use that accent. Uh, I I think, I I think when we look back, I think he's going to be misused and misunderstood (laughs) as a character actor when we look back, but um, I, I really appreciate him. I'm not the, you know, biggest fan of the Punisher movies, but um, I, don't, I don't know what you say about that, what your opinion is about that one. <laughs> uh, for, for me, the 2004 Punisher and the 2008 Punisher Warzone are super guilty pleasure movies. 
Hey, I, that's fine. That's fine. I like I like him a lot. I love John Travolta's hammy as hell gangster bad guy, and I love just the mindless carnage of Warzone. <laughs> it is insanely graphic. That's fantastic. And I love. I think Dominic West fucking kills it as Jigsaw. I think he's he gets completely overlooked in that film. Oh yeah, I I love Dominic West. I mean, he's yeah, yeah he's one of my favorite characters in The Wire. So yeah, I always love him, but. Did you know Dominic West turned down that Game of Thrones role because he didn't know what it was? Which Game of Thrones role? Um, uh, Lannister. Uh, Jamie? Yeah, Jamie. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Jamie Lannister. He turned that role down because he was like, I'm not sure what that, what that is, that source material. I'm not sure what it is. And I was like, no, nah, I'm good. Because this is, this is right after The Wire ended, you know? Uh, Game of Thrones started a couple years after. So, whew crazy man <laughs> he just didn't know what the, the books were he didn't bother yeah, to yeah. look up anything yeah he just yeah but it's like a famous story that he was just like i don't know like he was offered the role of jamie lannister jesus christ and was like not interested <laughs> that's that's balls that's, that's yeah you, wow you, yeah you'll, you'll have to look it up man it's in one of the it's like one of those like biggest like what the fuck hollywood what are you thinking <laughs> I well, I think it was a good call. I think Nikolai Coster Waldau brought a sort of boyish oh. charm slash like yeah. psycho villainy to that role that I don't think Dominic West could have pulled off. He looked he's not handsome enough to play Jamie Lannister. Yes, I agree with you. I think it's great for the show and great for Game of Thrones as a whole. But for Dominic West, oh no, big career mistake right there. <laughs> yeah, because you know you you play Jimmy you play Jimmy McNulty in the wire but the wire is never never ever ever gonna have the same uh weight that game of thrones has just because of the sheer numbers the the amount of people that have watched it yeah and it's like man he missed out <laughs> he missed out yeah. on a cultural cultural in, icon in the long run the wire is it's going to be remembered as the better show simply for what <laughs> oh, well, yeah. happened at the end of game of thrones there oh yeah not even I mean, close i mean yeah the wire i've never is seen like, a yeah. i've never seen a show have such a monumental, like monumentally horrible final season that it wipes its pop culture significance completely the fuck away. <laughs> I've never seen that happen before. Yeah, man. I, I know. I, yeah. I mean, there's obviously incredible moments in Game of Thrones, but uh, there's never a dull moment in The Wire. So <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that's just it. It's, it's that simple. Well, I remember hearing this story about how the years prior to the final season, so like, you know, 2017, 2018, they yeah. were um, the line to sit in the Iron Throne at Comic-Con stretched the entire fucking auditorium. Everyone wanted to sit in that. The year that Thrones ended, that line was completely empty. Nobody wanted to sit in the throne. Nobody cared anymore. It was such an insultingly bad season God. that it just fucked itself away. I, it's... It's pretty amazing. That's like, incredible, man. Yeah. The most yeah. popular show on television wiped itself out. Yeah. I, I've heard I, I've heard a couple of guys on on various podcasts try to like defend it and be like, it's still one of my favorite shows because of the journey and all that. But it's just like if you're always defending it, yeah, then it's not it, then it's not a totally good product. And like that's you know, in point, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, like, the journey's not fun because you know where it's going. Like, you know we're going to be walked, you know, we're walking towards a shitty ending, so it's not fun anymore. 
Yeah. Whereas the Sopranos is like, it is the journey. That is, that is it. Yeah. It is the journey. I'm in the it middle of my Sopranos that. rewatch right now. I just started season three. Yeah. It's Still flawless. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and James Gandolfini. I mean, Tony Soprano might be the greatest like dramatic television character of all time. Oh, that fucking Jersey accent. Like he's screaming everything. It's he's incredible. Constant man. Anger. I love it. Uh, yeah. God, he gives me chills in that show. Yeah. I'm, I'm rewatching the wire for like the third time right now. And it's just, that show's just epic, you know? Um, but yeah, this, uh, the wire and Sopranos I've always looked at as kind of, kind of just ahead of the game, you know, HBO's, you know, Titans right there. Prestige. Yeah. 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 They're never going away. They're going to be, Game of Thrones had its chance to be one of those Titans, but nope, <laughs> that's over. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just not, yeah, you're right. I mean, in the eyes of like, you know, if you're trying to be the greatest, you know, be the, be the goat of TV, it's, uh, it's not totally about numbers. It's more about uh, what's the end product there. And like you said, Game of Thrones kind of wiped itself. <laughs> Amazing. It's like if in the series finale of Breaking Bad, uh, all of a sudden, like, Walter White is killed off in the first five minutes, and Badger suddenly takes the name of Heisenberg and starts making blue, and you find out that, like, something happened to Jesse off screen, but you never find out what it was. And you imagine how pissed off people would be? (laughs) I mean... My God. Uh, how did we get here? <laughs> Dominic, Dominic West. Dominic West. Dominic West, Punisher, Thomas Jane. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> My God. Well, anyway, yeah, we love Thomas Jane in 1922. He's a, he's, a, he's a very unique actor, that's for sure. Yeah. Molly Parker plays Arlette, Wilford's doomed wife. Parker's domain is mainly television, where she had recurring roles on the TV shows Deadwood, Dexter, The Firm, House of Cards, Goliath, and Lost in Space. And I remember her in House of Cards. She was Jackie Sharp. And uh, just another, you know, Washington, D.C. fuck-up politician. And then in Dexter, she had a brief role in season six as Colin Hanks' sister. And uh, she, well, to be fair, this is a character that is written to be a shrew. It's a character who's written in a way that you're supposed to hate her to justify the rest of the movie. And yeah, well done in that respect. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think to sit through an hour and a half, you you kind of need that. It's a necessity to have that sort of, reasoning as the audience in some manner you know you're yeah. going into it knowing you, you're going into it knowing you're watching a horror film based on a stephen king you know novella so it's like okay it's going to be dark probably but uh it is nice to have <laughs> a little bit of like some kind of barrier almost where um she, she she's annoying you know like you said she shrew she's a shrew and uh it's it, you're on board that he's frustrated with her that's weird. If she was just, you know, nice and likable, you can't relate to Henry. Or yeah, this movie. You yeah, need, this movie. Yeah, yeah. You need her to this, be a complete bitch for the, for the for the movie to happen. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate, but yeah. 
I think I think that's a big thing in in horror and timing and why so many of them are like an hour and a half is like you can only you can only take so long to kind of fool us as the audience, you know, yeah. and you you have to keep it tight, and that's what this movie kind of succeeds in. It keeps you engaged in that, like oh, I'm. I'm I'm watching Wilford here and seeing what he's going to do, even though it's like, why? <laughs> this guy might be just crazy. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's pretty damn quick to just say, like, well, got to kill my wife. Yeah. <laughs> That's like his third option. Like, he doesn't even try that hard to find an alternate route here. He's like, well, fuck it. <laughs> then we got Dylan, uh, Dylan Schmid plays Henry, Wilford's 14-year-old son and reluctant accomplice. Schmidt has a recurring role on uh, the Snowpiercer show and has appeared in the films Horns and Kid Cannabis, among others. So he's making a name for himself. I don't expect the Snowpiercer show to last very long. It's uh, not getting the best reviews. I don't, I don't like when shows are made after movies. It's annoying. <laughs> it's very annoying. It's, now, now yeah. let me let me let me let me defend something though because I know if we have any listeners that have been with us for some time they'll probably know that we love Fargo. Completely different, completely different. Fargo is that's more of an homage, right? The yeah. the title. There's yeah. three separate stories here uh, in Fargo, three separate seasons, and we're gonna have a fourth uh, hopefully soon, sooner than later, and. Uh, that that's that's just completely different. It's there's there's plenty of things that are paying respect to the Coens and paying respect to that style of filmmaking. But this this Snowpiercer thing and this parasite idea, I just don't. I'm not totally on board with. I don't know about you. Well, Fargo is made by a competent filmmaker who adored the movie and adores the Coens' work and wants to make something in that same style, in that same vein, yeah. using you know characters and references from the Cohen's work. It's very much an homage. And Snowpiercer is taking a two hour action epic with a lot of substance, stretching it into an endless number of series, er taking away all the important and significant characters, replacing them with TV cardboard cutouts, and just you know taking away all the R-rated action, making yes. it suitable for TNT. Yeah, so exactly. This thing yeah. is like a half-grown clone. It's fucking pointless. Yeah. Like, everybody who loved Snowpiercer fucking resents this show. Yep. So it's I give it two seasons at the most. Yeah, I just I'm I'm not in. Like one of the biggest things is TNT. I know I know they they make occasionally make good TV shows occasionally, but it's very it's rare. And I just there's too many rules over there, man. And I don't. Yeah. Network TV doesn't do it for me anymore. I just can't do it. It's the same shit every time. Yeah. It's either a medical show, a cop show, or a remake of a movie. That's all they ever yeah, do. Or, or, yeah. Or it's like, yeah, it's like a Breaking Bad wannabe or a, yeah, Sopranos wannabe. Yeah. And they're mindless sitcom with a laugh track that's not funny. Yep. I don't have time for this anymore. My time's too valuable to be wasted on this bullshit. Oh. Caitlin Bernard plays Shannon Coterie, Henry's girlfriend. She's appeared in various short films and had bit parts in some films and shows, but 1922 is her most recognizable thing. I didn't really think it prevalent to bring up anything else. And finally, we've got Neil McDonough as prosperous farmer Harlan Coterie, Shannon's father. 
McDonagh has appeared in all sorts of stuff, namely the recurring villainous role of Damien Dark, Master Sorcerer, on the CW's Arrowverse. I know you don't really keep up with all that stuff, but I fucking loved him as Damien Dark. He was such a great bad guy. I think he's, I think he's a quality actor. Uh, he's a good heat check bad guy who can come, come in. He's creepy like already because of his eyes and his like silver fucking hair. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, um, I want to say walking tall where he goes toe to toe with the rock, uh, which is just, yeah. which is just nuts to think about that. He goes toe to toe with the rock, but it kind of makes sense. It's like, it works in the movie. And yeah, I, uh, yeah, he, he's cool, man. I like him. He was the best part about season four of Arrow, which was god-awful. But he was so charismatic and sadistic, and he was just, like, on a completely different level than everybody else. He murdered one of the show's leads. Like, it was a huge moment. They kill him at the end of that season, and then he gets resurrected on a different show, Legends of Tomorrow, where he joins up he creates the legion of doom with reverse flash and malcolm merlin and they start going across the history trying to find the spear of destiny and then the next season he's serving a time demon i mean what the fuck come on (laughs) it's insane dude the comic geek in me was freaking out the whole time (laughs) time demon played by john noble yes (laughs) uh in addition mcdonough has appeared in captain america the first avenger Minority Report, Red 2, Flags of Our Fathers, and the Hitcher remake. And I love this guy. He always delivers. Yeah. And no, he's very I wish solid. he had a bigger role in this. That silver hair, man. It'll always be really effective on the screen. He looks like the perfect bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he does. There's a few actors who have that look where they could play a villain like that. And he's one of them. 1922 has an IMDb score of 6.3. A Rotten Tomatoes, Rotten Tomatoes critic score of 91%, but an audience score of 57%. So kind of divided with the, uh, this one. It's a weird case where the critics love it and the audience hates it. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting. I mean, that's, that's, you know, for the IMDb nerds out there who want to, like, kind of get lost to, to look at the meta score and the IMDb rating and the, the different, difference in Rotten Tomatoes. Is, is really fascinating here because, like you said, just not a lot of peop- people like uh, like us, you know, just people watching Netflix throughout the week, watch this one. This wasn't one that, that seemed to be too hot or too popular when it came out in 2017. Yeah. But of the people, the writers and the, you know, movie minds that watched it seem to really enjoy it. So we, we seem to be in decent company as far as our opinion on it. I think more people need to see it is the bottom line. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I don't know if it was a success because there's no way to really know how Netflix originals measure their success. Yeah. That's, that's how the, you know, the Netflix people figure that shit out. But I know that this was not very uh, well advertised. It was just kind of thrown on Netflix as an afterthought. The big one at the time was Gerald's Game. That got way more attention than yeah, I mean, yeah, you just think about sheer um, conversation. You know, like you said, Gerald's Game. I feel like everybody was talking about that one. Some, something like Bird Box, everybody was talking about in 1922. Never, There was never that conversation with 1922. For every big Netflix movie that gets, like, publicized, there's 15 that are just thrown on there that nobody yeah. ever hears about until they find it themselves. And I think 1922 is one of those. But, you know, we found it, and we're talking about it. 
So let's get into the plot. Let's do this. So obviously our story takes place in 1922. It would be weird if it took place in the 50s. Uh, we meet Wilfred James, a farmer living in Hemingford Home, Nebraska, with his wife Arlette and their 14-year-old son Henry. And Wilfred opens the story in a hotel in Omaha, writing his confession. He murdered his wife, and this is how and why. He is upset after his wife inherits 100 acres of land from her late father. She wants to sell this land to a hog processing company, which will decrease the value of Henry's farm and fuck up the land and the stream and make it all just gross with hog water, dead entrails and shit. So she suggests selling the farm alongside the land to get a pretty penny, move the family to Omaha and start a dress shop. And this greatly pisses off Wilfred to the point where he immediately starts to resent and hate his wife for wanting to uproot his family farm, take away what's rightfully his, and dare I say it, become the breadwinner. That's a big point of contention for a 1922 American farmer. He makes the money, he owns the land. And he tries to convince Henry that, you know, life's better here. Henry agrees, he's got a girl next door. He doesn't wanna leave. Mom doesn't give a shit. She wants to take Henry with her after he, after Henry and uh, I mean, uh, Arlette and Wilfred can't come to a deal, they want to, she wants a divorce. And Wilfred, who so far has yet to prove himself as a bad father or a bad husband or anything, just says calmly, where, where, where does a boy go? And she says, well, me, a boy needs his mother. I, I really resent that line because it very much implies, well, like, you know, fuck dad. He doesn't need him. He needs me. So... It's very much structured in a way for you to be on Wilfred's side immediately. Yeah, 100%. Even, even if whatever happened in 1920 and 1921 was really bad, you just, this is what we're seeing, and we're seeing the frustration uh, from Wilfred over, over multiple things. And I, I, do, I do love his, his narration as he's kind of telling you what's going on and you know, in 1922, uh, a man's, you know, a man's land is his status. You know, that's his, yeah, that's his, that's his all. That's his end all be all is his land. That's how he proves who he is as a person. And yeah. so I, I, I agree with you. I think the immediate, I mean, it takes like five minutes to really understand what's going on. <laughs> and, and you, you immediately feel that tension um, from the, the kind of robotic ways we feel like a family should work. Yeah. Um, in, Amer- in America, just like you said, just kind of the man makes the money and the wife should take care of the kid and, you know, make dinner and we'll just do that every day. And she's um, a bit of a strong character here. And maybe if we saw a movie from her perspective, we'd be on her side. But <sighs> I don't know. Cause I don't know. It's really tough. Her motives are pretty damn selfish, but then again, so are his. It's, yeah, yeah. it's never about what's best for Henry. It's always about what do I want? Yeah. And that's just, I don't know. There's no heroes in this movie. It's all just pieces of shit trying to get their way. And, yeah, uh, no, re- no redemption. So Henry is torn here. He loves his parents. He wants to stay in Nebraska. And mom is not making a strong case for him to be on her side. So Wilfred uh, 
digs into this and he's very manipulative and very smart in how he takes Henry and just kind of plays, plays him like a puppet tells almost like tries to make it like it's Henry's idea. He says, you know, the only way that we'll be happy is if she's dead. That's the only way. And Henry's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, you know, there's gotta be another way. You could get, you get a lawyer and, Wolford's like, do you know the kind of lawyer she and that company are going to bring down upon us? You think I can afford some high-powered attorney? No, not an option. And it's, it's sad. The fact that he involves his kid in this, that he could, he could have just done it himself and told Henry that she ran off. But no, he has to drag Henry into this and make him an accessory. It's... I mean, no wonder the kid ended up so fucked up. It's it's hard to believe this would have happened any other way. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. And Wilfred is this is this is sort of my point about if there were a movie or a story in the perspective of Arlette. Because after her death, the way you're watching Wilfred continue continue to manipulate, it is it's a horror. It's a horror movie in itself. Just the way he's controlling his child. Yeah, yeah, but he convinces himself that what he did was the right thing, and he just can, he tells himself Henry will be all right in the end. We we'll move past this. Like he didn't just watch his mother get stabbed to death. Um, yeah. Before we get to that, <laughs> Wilf decides the best way to do this is to lull Arlette into a false sense of security. So he. Tells her, I've changed my mind. Let's sell. Let's go to Omaha. I'll be a mechanic. We're going to be a happy family. Let's fucking celebrate. Yeah. And she's like, yay, I get to keep my boys and we're going to be a family. It's super sad knowing where this is going. Yeah. (laughs) He gets her nice and liquored up and she starts saying some pretty nasty shit to Henry. And, uh, we know, like she knows that Henry's uh, he's he's sweet on the neighbor girl Shannon, and she tells she tells him, no, don't like don't have sex, but do whatever, do everything else. Just don't go in there. It's it's some pretty sick shit to hear, the way she talks about it, the the words she uses, and it offends Henry big time. That's the driving so. force that tells that makes him finally go through go through with the plan. Well, yeah, he, he, he chooses his dad's side at that point. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, mom is a, is a nasty, you know, horrible lady, and she has to die. I get it, dad. She's going to take Shannon away from me. I got to do this. And dad's like, yep, <laughs> let's take care of business. Ugh. God. So <laughs> she, Henry, uh, Wilford carries Arlette upstairs, puts her to bed, and he and Henry start getting their plan into action. Henry is a burlap sack. Wilfred grabs the biggest fucking kitchen knife he can find. And Henry tells him, like, can't we just put a pillow over her face or something? And, and uh, Wilfred says, no, 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 no. Be too, be too slow. Like, this is going to be fucking painless. And in the story, it expands on that a bit further. Same questions asked. Henry asks, you know, can't we use a pillow? And Wilfred lies to him and says, no, no, be too slow. And then he tells the, uh, the reader, because it's, it's told from his perspective, he says, truth is, I could have used a pillow. It would have been painless. But every time I envisioned doing this, I had a knife. So that's how we're doing it. 
like, fuck. That's that's dark. Every time I yeah. Woof, that adds some that adds some <laughs> some girth to that. Yeah, for sure. Like this is not his he's been fantasizing about this for quite a while. I think he just used the the uh the land as an excuse. Oh man. So they go into the into the bedroom. Henry is crouched over her with a burlap sack. Wilford's ready to go with the knife. And, dude, my fucking heart broke when Henry just went, goodbye, mama. Go- goodbye. Like, oh, my God. Such a bizarre way to say bye. He doesn't understand the, the significance of this. He doesn't feel the weight until it's too late. Yeah, like the <laughs> finality of death. Yeah. What a fucking crash course. <laughs> you know, man, I mean, God. So Henry just wraps her head up in a burlap and Wilford just starts fucking stabbing at the throat. Just, this was not a quick death. She, no. she yeah, this was painful as fuck. You can feel it. Oh, you can feel her fear, her pain. And Wilford just keeps going, finally cuts her throat and she bleeds out. <laughs> My God. They drag the body out wrapped in bed sheets. Henry passes out after he sees the well and is like, that's no grave. (laughs) That's no grave for her. And he passes out. Wilfred drags the body, chucks it down the old well, like garbage. Yeah. And uh, in the story, Henry knew about the well from the beginning. Like he was much more complacent in the story, but uh, he still did pass out just from the actions of it. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 a well done adaptation though. Um, Wilfred and Henry go back in the house and start scrubbing, and Wilfred says, "I think one of the darkest lines in the story, where he says, I I learned something about murder that night that most people never learn in their lifetimes. Murder is sin, but murder is also work." <laughs> <laughs> Man, is <laughs> this is a dark film to sit through? There, there is very little light in any moment of this film. I mean, you are essentially just watching a farmer lose his fucking mind over an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> God. So they start scrubbing, and yeah, man, they just start like the you know the whole night up until morning clean up the house like it never happened. And uh, the next day, Wilford goes to pack up her belongings like she left. He doesn't grab everything because that would look too suspicious. He grabs a few things and chucks her suitcase in down the well. And we get one of the grisliest (laughs) images I've ever seen of Arlette's just broken corpse staring up at him. And her jaw dislocates and a rat crawls out of it. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. The second I read that in the story, I was like, please don't put this in the movie. <laughs> I don't oh, want to see that. It's there, yeah. It is very there. Oh, my God. <sighs> Wilford, like, chucks the suitcase down. They're trying to be like, get away from her, because there's tons of rats down there. Yes. And they're eating her. <laughs> They (laughs) so in order to cover up the events of the uh, of the night, they 
sacrifice a cow. They put one of their cows on the covering to the well, so it falls through, and it's so painful to hear that animal scream. And uh, Wilford, it doesn't die immediately when it falls, so Wilford goes and shoots it in the head. And that way he has an excuse to fill the well. Uh, lawyer shows up at the house, Mr. L- uh, Mr. Lester, I think his name was. And um, he is a representative of this hog company. Yeah, Lester. And he wants to know, like, where's Arlette? We have a contract to write up. And <laughs> Wilford pulls out the old, oh, brother, where art thou? And says, she done R-U-N-N-O-F-T. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, no, no excuse. Just like, yeah, she's gone. Hard to t- pin that girl down. And Lester's like, we were about to make a lot of money together. Like, I find that hard to believe. And he's like, well, fuck you then. Get off my property. It's, it's not very cordial with the, with the lawyer. No, no, no. He's not like, oh, my wife's missing? Yeah, it's just so, yeah, you know. She going, she going, uh, she going, you know, she's a, she's a drifter. She plum dong diddly ding dong left me right there. <laughs> i tell you what. <laughs> that Nebraska farmer accent is so like, I'll tell you what. It's so, oh my God, it's such a stereotypical. Just, <laughs> it's hard not to laugh at it. I'm sorry if you're listening this, to this in Nebraska, but <laughs> not trying to piss off a whole state here. But, oh no! Uh, but all 15 people in Nebraska. <laughs> we don't want to hurt your feelings. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> Lester, oh. Lester's upset and he's pissed off and he's confused and he thinks something happened to Arlette. So he yeah. gets the law involved. So Sheriff Jones shows up and is very much like, you know, sorry, I got to do this, Wilf, but this dumbass lawyer told me that he's suspicious, so I got to take a look around. Is that okay with you? And Wilford's like, yeah, look, we got nothing to hide and tells her in the whole story about how in the middle of the night, Arlette packed up and left, took her favorite clothes, and, you know, that's it. That's all there is to it. He tells him the story about the cow and says, you know, we're, I'm filling in the well. You can come take a look. And the sheriff's like, no, nah, not necessary. I see no evidence of a crime here. <laughs> he got away Good with job. it. And Henry, this ain't sitting right with Henry. He's feeling guilty. He's feeling confused. And Wilford does not do a good job of easing this guilt. He just kind of says, you know, walk it off. <laughs> Walk it off. Walk that murder off. Yep. So Henry finds solace in Shannon's arms and gets her pregnant. And pisses off her father big time. And this is one of the biggest issues I had with the story and to a further extent the movie. Harlan has a lot of misplaced blame. He throws this at Wilfred. And I disagree with that. Wilfred didn't knock up his daughter. Be, be mad at the kid, but, you know, dad's in the same boat. His son knocked up, you know. It's, I don't know why he just went after Wilfred. It makes sense for the story, but it just doesn't feel, like, I feel like he, you know, blamed the wrong guy here. Yeah, it's, it, it, it isn't very authentic. But th- this, that happens sometimes in movies where, you know, there's like this um, male aggression where the, like father versus father, like how dare you 
like it like the like the sun is an extension of him and it, I, I agree with you I think it is misplaced and I don't think it's authentic I think in real life the dad would immediately go after the kid yeah yeah I assume that's what he was going to do but instead he acts like you know Wilford's not keep you know you should have kept your boy on a tighter leash and now you owe me $75 for a catholic home like <laughs> yeah if i was wilford i would have been like uh no fuck off i don't owe you anything but <laughs> yeah you know wilford does pay him to keep what little friendship he has left but as far as arlen's concerned that friendship is done you know, plum done over right there. Tell you what. <laughs> I tell you what, Wilf, you've done, did the wrong, done, did it now, boy. <laughs> oh, boy, this one's going to get, this one's going to be a thorn in my side in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what. I don't want to live in a world where I can't make fun of a 1920s Nebraska accent. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't want to live in a world where I, uh, I people from Texas can't be made fun, be made fun of. You know, I'm, I'm from Texas. Yeah. I, I I don't have like a heavy accent, but I definitely say I say y'all. And if you talk to me for long enough, you can tell I'm from the South. I'm okay with that. That's all right. Yeah, because it's because it's true. And I'm from the Northeast, so I don't know how you're going to make fun of my accent. Just call me an asshole a bunch of times. <laughs> that's, that's what we do. We curse better than anybody. Are you from Are you from New York, Philadelphia, Boston, or one of the other ones? One of the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> my father was an asshole, and I come from a long line. <laughs> no, just... <laughs> oh, boy. So... <laughs> Henry's starting to get brooding and isolated. He's upset at Wilford's reaction to Shannon's pregnancy. He thinks Wilford's going to give him a car and $200 and send him on his way. And Wilford's like, you fucked up, kid. And now I got to deal with this. He's very much like, what did you do? One of the last things your mama said was keep it in your fucking pants. And here you go, just disrespecting her memory. Like, fuck. Give me back my son. <laughs> well, Henry's reaction is like, you know, you can't help me. You can't even cut a throat right. Whew. That was, damn. <laughs> and while, uh, <clears throat> while Wilford's at the bank getting a loan for $35, uh, Henry steals his car and flees to go find Shannon at the girl's home. And he leaves a note saying, I know you can send the law after me, but if you do, I'll tell them everything. Damn. Wilford suddenly finds himself in a bit of a pickle. Can't go after his son. Can't send the cops after his son because he's going to spill the beans. So he's just got to let Henry make his own decisions here. Oof. Let him be a man. Yep. That's what he was telling him to do all along, right? Yeah, be a man. This is what you get, Wilf. Yep. Fucking domino effect right here. You see what happens? Do you see what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass, Wilf? Henry, this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass. I would have 
Can you imagine if Wilford just sat him down and had that talk? <laughs> just out of nowhere. <laughs> no, I, I really can't imagine that. I, I really can't. John Goodman leans in and just goes, you're killing your father, Henry. <laughs> Goddamn. <laughs> I'm going to finish my coffee. We go down some fucking weird rabbit holes in this show. I love it. <laughs> Game of Thrones, Big Lebowski. It's okay. Winter comes. Speaking of Game of Thrones. Yeah, I was like, wait, no, no. <laughs> and uh, Wilfred is now alone and cold because his house is falling apart. He takes out a second mortgage to fix this house. And uh, he's just losing it. He's constantly seeing rats. He sees a rat chew off the teat of one of his cows. That was a grisly fucking image. In the story, the damn rat eats it, and we get a full paragraph of that. That was nice. <laughs> oh yeah that's good fun Stephen King likes to use a whole paragraph to describe um, a rock moving from one place to the next there is. He's, the be- he's, he's the best at that he's the best at just the, the actual journey of like take this paragraph and describe this little thing that happened he's so good at it I'm not going to lie certain King books when I'm reading them there's a, there's a minor bit of skimming just I can tell when one of those paragraphs is coming I'll read keywords just so I can get on with the dialogue because there is a lot of that sometimes. You, you, you've been down that road enough to like, all right, I, I know the trope here. You don't need a paragraph to answer a telephone or get in a car. You just don't. Yeah. That's being wordy. You don't get paid by the word, Steve. You, you don't need to do that anymore. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. So these rats are just coming out, of, coming out of nowhere. One of them bites Wilfred right in the webbing between his thumb and his index finger. And that is Grizzly. That thing holds on, and he just throws it to the floor and stomps it to death. Ugh. And bandages up the wound, but does not clean it out first. And so that thing gets infected fast. Oof. So now that he's going mad with fever... And he's cold from the snow. He's not fixing up his house. He gets picked up by the sheriff who shows up to tell him that they found his wife or they found a drifter they think is his wife. So uh, Wilford gets away with that murder. But now he's the sheriff takes him to the hospital where they have to amputate the hand. So he loses the hand. And uh, while there... Henry, um, the cops also tell him that a bank was robbed by a kid matching Henry's uh, description. And they think Henry might be, you know, Bonnie and Clyde in, out there with Shannon. Oh, sad. All because he didn't want to fucking move to Omaha. <laughs> and, um, in a, at the end of the movie, Wilfred is confronted by the ghost of Arlette who is now surrounded by rats. And she corners him in the basement and whispers to him the fate of Henry and Shannon. And what happened was they did become robbers. They became known as the Sweetheart Bandits. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The Sticky Bandits. (laughs) Fucking Home Alone is awesome. I always loved the Sticky Bandits. His hand right in the the change bucket. You broke out of prison to rob 68 cents from a Santa Claus? (laughs) Oh, beautiful. <laughs> Legendary work. Home Alone was up for two Oscars. We can do it on the other show. 
Uh, we will one day. Damn straight. Merry Christmas, everybody. Yes. <laughs> so they started robbing restaurants and stores and banks, and they became kind of famous. Their faces got in the paper, and at a diner, they get recognized. And the guy takes a shot at them when they're running away, and Shannon gets shot in the chest, and she loses the baby. Henry takes her to a warehouse, tries to get her medical attention, but she dies before he can. And then knowing she's dead, he puts a bullet in his head. Damn. Very sad. <laughs> Extremely. And when Henry go, I mean, when uh, Wilford goes to identify the body, Henry's face has been gnawed by rats. He's missing an eye. And it's just, oh, man. I, I, I read the story, and I was not expecting that. I don't remember that in the story. And he has this Godfather one moment where he's like, look how they massacred my boy. <laughs> he says, like, my boy. <laughs> oh, boy. So, uh, Shannon's funeral is full of the whole town. Everyone's there. Harlan's in the front row sobbing. Wilfred comes in briefly and stands in the back. And then he's the only one who attends Henry's funeral. Just... Yeah, I get it. And uh, he later goes to Harlan to try to sell him the land that is now his that Arlette had had. And Harlan doesn't want it. <laughs> he tells Wilford to sell it to the bank. And Wilford's like, but they'll sell it right back to those hog bastards. It's your extreme too, Harlan. Don't you want to keep it nice? And Harlan's like, I just buried my daughter. <laughs> I'm not thinking about land right now. My wife left me. It's over. Don't come back here, Wilfred. And Wilfred ends up being forced to sell the land for pennies on the dollar to the fucking hog people. And he sells the farm. He ends up, you know, fucked. And having to move to Omaha. But he's still being haunted by those fucking rats. They won't leave him alone. So... Eight years later, in 1930, Wilfred's writing his confession, telling, ever, telling whoever will read this that he killed his wife, and in the end, we all get caught. And he looks around, and there's dozens of rats just coming out of the walls and on his bed, and he sees the ghosts of Arlette, Henry, and Shannon holding a butcher knife, same knife that he killed Arlette with, and they say, Henry says it'll be quick. In the book, it is very much not quick. He suffered badly. <laughs> and that's 1922. It's very, uh, it's very dark. <laughs> you can stomach rats. You know, a lot of people, rats are the, uh, like, the breaking point. Like, a lot of people are freaking terrified of rats. Uh, I, well, I have a story one time. Uh, you know, I lived in Romania for about 10 months when I was – 17 and part of when I was 18. So there were rats that would hang out in the like neighborhood I lived in all the time in Reshitsa, Romania. This is a, this is like a valley town where everything, there's mountains on the sides of everywhere. So like the main street, it's like literally in a valley and there's rats all the time in the streets and in alleyways. There's about 60,000 people in this city. And, you know, so not a big town, but they just never, ever would, it, you know, try to fix this rat situation. So there's one night I was asleep and I heard some noise downstairs. So I went downstairs 
turn all the lights on. And I figured, I figured it was going to be something of that nature. I did not know that it was going to be about, you know, a foot big, you know, rat in my downstairs restroom. I found out that there was a hole right behind the toilet that it was coming in and out of. Oh. Yeah. So needless to say, that freaked me out. I saw it, you know, and I was trying to get it out of the house. So I opened, opened the front door, opened the back door, and I got a broom and I just started poking at it, poking at it. And it was making these crazy noises that I like couldn't go to sleep that night because I eventually got it out. It went out the back door, you know, and like scurried away. But I, I totally understand anyone who does not want to go through a movie where this kind of stuff is just thrown at you constantly. Cause it is disgusting. The tail is disgusting. Um, I get it, man. They're freaky as hell. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't necessarily recommend this movie. Hmm. for that for, for that for that matter maybe but i yeah. i do think i do think it is a powerful horror movie if you're trying to just be scared one night and you know um uh, get into a really creepy atmosphere and for that reason i i get I, I give this movie an eight i think it's i think it's you know is right there kind of you know sets the bar for netflix films uh especially netflix horror films because there's not a lot of good ones out there so yeah <laughs> I, I enjoy I, I enjoy this one i think it's i think it's uh, something worth talking about yeah, for sure. I give it an eight as well. Uh, I have one filmgasm fact for you. There is not a lot of let's trivia. Let's get this. Yeah, here we go. Hemingford Home is the same small town where Mother Abigail resides in Stephen King's The Stand. Oh, okay. There you go. The you always have those. Town. Yeah. That's awesome. This is where God retired. <laughs> <laughs> Hemingford Home, Nebraska. And that's literally it. That's all I had for trivia. <laughs> uh, yeah. Eight. It's a dark story that stands on Thomas Jane's terrific performance. And while not one of King's most memorable tales, I would say it's certainly an intriguing one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But, I mean, to stand amongst his most memorable tales, I mean, that dude has written some, some titans. So, I, it's tough well, to, yeah, and, and, and there's been some adaptations that are titans where, it, it, obviously – stretches past horror and goes into, you know, the stand by me's, the Shawshank Redemptions. And, you know, it's just, yeah, there's, there's so much there. Yeah, for sure. But I admire anyone who's willing to take a chance on adapting one of his stories, yes. especially if you're going to do it right and do the actual story. So way to go, Zach Hilditch. Good effort. And uh, we'll finish up with our newest segment, the spotlight, where Austin and I shine a little light on some of the films we've watched on our own time. So uh, why don't you start us off? What have you been checking out? Well, yeah, I want to spotlight a film that uh, we recently put a review up, uh, a movie I watched called George Washington. Uh, this is my one of the more recent masterpieces I think I've watched. It's in my Hall of Tens now. It's David Gordon Green's debut effort uh, at the uh, old writing and directing uh, for the big screen. And if you recognize that name, that's because David Gordon Green has directed a lot of cool movies, mainly for horror fans, uh, the 2018 Halloween, which, you know, him and Danny McBride did incredible work and then David Gordon Green directed it. But George Washington is completely opposite of something like Halloween. George Washington is a very visceral type experience built mainly on cinematography and atmosphere and feel and emotions um the dialogue that is there is very 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 powerful there's a few moments that are tough to stomach but if you if you enjoy um 
I'm trying to think of another, a, a stuff like the tree of life stuff. That's going to kind of like uh, a movie like waves that came out last year. That's going to kind of pull you in definitely going to make you cry and, you know, get hit the tender parts of your, of your watching, um, watching experience. So I highly recommend it right now. It's on criterion channel. I don't know if it's on anything else at the moment, but uh, George Washington, David Gordon green, you know, really good movie. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. David Gordon green is proven to be a hell of a filmmaker and I'm excited to see yeah. what he does next. And I've definitely oh, got to yeah. take a trip down memory lane and check out some of his early work. I recently watched a long awaited John Carpenter classic that I hadn't seen the fog 1980, the film Carpenter did in between Halloween and escape from New York. And it was creepy as hell. It is really a solid ghost story. And uh, it's the buildup is so good. It opens with a literal campfire tale of this old, this old pirate guy talking about how a hundred years ago, these sailors of this ship, the Elizabeth Dane crashed into the rocks and every hundred years they come back and haunt this, the townsfolk of Antonio Bay. And we find out as the film goes along that they were betrayed and murdered. And that's why they're haunting this town. And it's really well done. The cast is all people from Carpenter's classics. You've got Jamie Lee Curtis, Adrian Barbeau, Tom Atkins, Janet Lee is in it. It was really neat. It was creepy. One of his uh, best scores, the score from the fog is just unnerving. You never see the, the pirate ghost's face. It's, they're always just clouded, shrouded in darkness and shadow. Oh, uh, yeah, that picture is so cool. The one that you have for the review. Yeah. I, cannot, I cannot wait to watch The Fog. I'll be doing that hopefully soon. Well, I, well, I mean, I, I figure we're going to be doing it on the podcast at some point, so I might wait for that, but I don't know. I, I kind of can't wait. I was going to wait for the podcast too, but I've been keeping a personal list of the films that I've watched over my life. And I was nearing 2000 and I wanted my 2000th film to be special. So I chose the fog. That's so cool. I, I love that you have kept track that you have that log. Um, do you think you actually have all 2000 films you've ever seen on there? Meaning, meaning do you think there's actually probably more? I, I, I get the occasional like one that pops into my head. That's not on the list, but that happens rarely. So I think I have most of them. Yeah. And uh, amazing. Yeah. I'm glad I chose the fog. It was, uh, it's, it's one of Carpenter's long, like, you know, originals that I just never checked out and they just took it off shutter too, which was upsetting. So thankfully my uncle had the DVD, but yeah, it's not on shutter anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, I would expect, I, I didn't have a problem with it leaving anything cause I would expect Sean to have all of Carpenter's stuff on DVD. <laughs> so figured it will always, will always be okay with that one. He's got, he's got most of them. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Well, that is all for this week, folks. Next week, we're going back to Wes Craven with arguably his strangest film. When research scientist Alec Holland is exposed to deadly chemicals, he transforms into the monstrous but heroic Swamp Thing. We'll talk a bit about the character's comic book origins and take you through an 80s cult classic that either of, like, neither of us have seen. So it'll be another first time watch. Yeah, that's super exciting. I mean, Swamp Swamp Thing is a, a awesome title. <laughs> Wes Craven obviously is one of the uh, icons of of modern horror, and I 
would like to um, see more of his stuff. And I, I, I think I've been a little harsh on him without really diving into the, to the, the girth of his career. So I'm excited. Yeah. And I just found out that Ray Weiss plays Swamp Thing. So very excited about that. Boom. And uh, also on Oscar Sunday, we'll be diving into, the, into Spike Lee's new Netflix original film, The Five Bloods, premiering on Friday, June 12th. So check that out. In the meantime, no matter how much land your significant other inherits, don't stab them to death and throw them down a well. And especially don't involve your kids. See you next Wednesday. Mm-hmm.